You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. David Sterling was a young commando officer recovering in a hospital in Cairo from a parachuting accident. He had time on his hands to ponder the general failure of special forces operations in the Middle East at that time. Thus, in July 1941, L detachment of the SAS Brigade came into being in Egypt. Owen McGonagall was born in Dublin in 1920. In pre-partition Ireland, a Catholic by religion, he was brought up in Belfast, his father's birthplace. At the outbreak of World War II in 1939, he abandoned his law studies and joined the Royal Ulster Rifles. He ultimately became a commando and a founder member of the SAS. Blur Paddy Main's best mate, he's been brought back into the public's attention by the BBC's SAS Rogue Hero series. His brother Ambrose also joined up and served with distinction in World War II. He later became one of the best-known judges during the Troubles. But who were Owen and Ambrose McGonagall? What were their motivations? What happened to them? And what is their legacy? I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph reporter Andrew Madden. Andrew, you're welcome once again to the Bell Tell. Thanks for having me. And just to remind the listeners that we have previously spoke about Blair Patty Main. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know an awful lot of listeners were very interested in that, but if anyone hasn't got around to listening to that, you can find that on Apple, you can find that on Spotify, and of course you can find it on the Belfast Telegraph website. Owen McGonagall, he was Patty Main's mate, I suppose, and that's perhaps why we're talking about him and Mm -hmm. why people may have heard of him, especially because of the recent BBC series. Who was he? What was his background? Well, he was born in 1920 in Dublin. This would have been just before uh, partition. Um, India family of three boys. Um, He had a brother, Ambrose, and an older brother, Richard, and four girls. Um, He came from a long line of people in the legal profession. Now, he, his family moved to Belfast, which was his father's uh, hometown. His father was John McGonagall, uh, King's Council, in 1922. Now, John McGonagall, he would go on to become uh, one of the chief crown prosecutor in Belfast. So he lived up in the uh, Malone Road. And But both Owen and Ambrose both attended uh, boarding schools in the south. Um, and like Blair Main, actually, they excelled in sport and did well academically. Ambrose, more proficient at rugby, and Owen would have um, specialised in cricket. 
Uh, Owen enrolled in Trinity College Dublin in 1938 to study law, like his father. Um, but as a Catholic born in Dublin, in theory, he wasn't actually permitted to attend Trinity because the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland at the time had banned Irish Catholics from attending uh, the university for up to 99 years and only removed that ban back in 1970. So it was reserved generally for, for Protestants. So Owen enrolled under his family's Belfast address, so that's why he was able to go to Trinity. But he wasn't there very long. Um, both Ambrose and Owen joined the Royal Ulster Rifles in Ballymena at the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. Now, it was in Ballymena with the Royal Ulster, Royal Ulster Rifles that Owen and Ambrose became close friends with Blair Main. But Ambrose had actually met him previously by playing rugby at Queen's University. Now, um, the trio became close and then they would visit each other's families on breaks and whatnot. Um, then in June 1940, um, both Blair and Owen were posted to the Scottish Rifles and they found themselves in Aberdeenshire in Scotland. Both Owen and Ambrose at the outbreak of war enthusiastically gave up their studies or whatever they were doing at the time and joined up. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's the SAS link, especially to Owen. Um, Ambrose actually was a member of the SBS. Yeah. The, 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 Their sister the, squadron. Their sister squadron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose... A Catholic born in Dublin by the name of Owen McGonagall, a lot of people mightn't automatically assume, you know, that that might be someone who would... No, not at all. Not at all. But they did have um, like family members who had served in the British Army um, in the decades previous, several of them actually. Um, and there seemed to be fairly little debate on whether or not to sign up. Um, it was very much they thought it was their calling. Yeah. But, but I suppose... Um, but yes, in terms of his background. Uh, yeah. That background, it all may not be as it seems to mm-hmm. us looking back and to perhaps with the prejudice of the Troubles and, and mm-hmm. history. They were Catholics, mm-hmm. but they were very well off Catholics. They were, yeah. And they were perhaps very loyal to the establishment. It's not entirely clear what their politics was, Mm -hmm. but I think the point I'm making is perhaps we shouldn't be completely surprised by this. Of course not, yeah. I think um, like Blair Main, um, Owen and Ambrose, they they saw themselves first and foremost as Ulstermen, even though they were born in Dublin and whatnot, but their father was an Ulsterman. They moved there from a very young age to Belfast um, and grew up there, obviously, with Stinson Boarding School down south and whatnot, but first and foremost, they saw themselves as Ulstermen. So... I think the point is that, uh, especially at that stage, that people in Dublin and people, that their, their loyalties perhaps were not as clear cut as people would imagine them today. Yeah, very much so. So it may not have been as atypical yeah. as we are yeah. assuming. But Ambrose and Paddy and Owen, <laughs> they end up in Aberdeenshire. In the- um, actually, Ambrose didn't. Ambrose had broken his leg during training while motorcycling and he opted to remain in Northern Ireland with the Royal Ulster Rifles at the time. So it was just Blair and Owen that went over to Aberdeenshire. And then the pair, both Owen and Blair, then they joined, uh, which was the newly formed at the time, number 11 Scottish Commando. And then they were shipped over to the Iron Isles in Scotland to undergo rigorous training. So what are, people may be aware of the word commando, but 
the commandos were a new thing in World War Two. Uh, Winston Churchill certainly took the credit for the idea, whether idea. that's true or not. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. what were they? Well, essentially, they were just an, an elite special forces unit. They underwent um, specialist training, and they would have went, uh, underwent a lot more rigorous training than, say, just the regular British Army units because they were sent for special missions, and they would have been, you know, a smaller force and used more accurately in pinpointed attacks, um, oftentimes behind enemy lines, which was kind of set the template for the SAS to a degree in the years that would come. So I suppose that's a very normal. This is we we hear of special forces and, and elite forces, but at the time it was quite a new thing, and they looked for special types of characters, you know, beyond the normal soldier, I suppose, a normal person called up, and well, it took it definitely took a special kind of person. Yeah. Blair Main and Owen McGonagall were certainly those that kind of uh, person, and we talked about uh, Paddy Main getting away with an awful lot. Oh, 100 percent, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what went on in Ireland? Um, well, this, the, the, the setting up of the, the commandos, this, you had to remember, followed the withdrawal from Dunkirk in May and June 1940. Now, Britain was on the defence at this time, and Churchill uh, very much wanted to strike back, so he was planning using his commando units to do this. So at Arn, when they were trained, they would stay like, billeted with um, local families, essentially, and they would they would look after them and feed them and whatnot. And this is where Blair um, got known for his rambunctious behaviour. Um, they were responsible Owen and Blair were actually responsible for weapons training and they kept much of the regiment's ammo in their billet um, and as Blair noted in a letter to his mother the ammo came in very handy for splitting up large lumps of coal in the fire and it was not unknown for uh, for the soldiers in particular Blair to improve the ventilation of the cottage they were standing in by shooting out the window panes so the, the glazer was, was kept very busy and this is where you get a kind of glimpse into the relationship between Owen and Blair so Owen wasn't, or Blair wouldn't have been the, the kind of guy to uh, take orders that he disagreed with um, lightly um, and he wouldn't you know, listen to someone whenever he got into one of his moods, shall we say. But as he was known for being rowdy, one fellow soldier who served with him at the time said that the only person that was able to control Paddy when he cut loose was Owen McGargle. Owen had been known to point a revolver at him and say, I'll shoot you Blair, and inevitably uh, Paddy would stop what he was doing because he knew that that all meant it. So we knew how to control him. That's pretty extreme behaviour. Let's be honest. It is. It was an extreme time. Very different time. Yeah. And they had they had a they had a very close friendship, and we'll discuss that later. I mm-hmm. suppose because Owen McGonagall died in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, that perhaps mean when we say Blair means best friend. Do we do we really mean only friend or 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 or, or, or is it more than that? Um, I think he. I think Blair had quite a few you know acquaintances back home in Ballymena, you know, around the bar of the the Adair Arms Hotel and stuff. But he didn't have he didn't keep anyone very close to him. I would say other than you know his mother. Um, but Owen would have been yeah his closest his friend his companion yeah. So, from the commandos which was an elite group of soldiers for 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 specific reasons and specific raids and we we remember the films the the the, the, the commandos but from that mm-hmm. then an, another elite another tiny group comes about the SAS July 1941 L detachment of the SAS brigade came into being in Egypt The title was to deceive the Axis into believing that a complete British airborne brigade was in the Middle East. Can we explain what the difference was between, the original difference was between the commandos and the SAS? The commandos would have been 
you know, they were an you know, official uh, British Army regiment, but when the SAS was first formed, it was almost like um, a guinea pig kind of trial. David Sterling came up with the idea. And essentially what they, they would pick their own missions. Um, they would gather their own resources and they, they would be dropped into um, a desert base and they would launch their own missions from there. They wouldn't operate under the normal chain of command, which the commandos would have done. And they were also responsible for their own training. Um, so it was very much a self-contained unit, whereas the commando units were more spread out. And it was tiny. It was tiny. Yeah, it was only um, 50 or so uh, members to start off with. Obviously, the numbers grew after that. Um, but yeah, no, it was very, very tiny. I mean, because the, the British Army, the hierarchy, whenever David Sterling requested permission to do this, um, they were very hesitant. So they were hesitant to um, put up, you know, many weapons or they were giving them official training and whatnot. They kind of just said, right, if you want to do this, you can sort yourself out. And that's what they did. And there's no doubt, I mean, that sometimes these raids carried out by a very small number of people uh, managed to manage oh, yeah. to. You're talking about groups of maybe four or five people uh, at each airfield. Yeah. I, 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 in researching this podcast, there's one uh, member of this team who said they believe that they destroyed more Axis aircraft in North Africa than the RAF did. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we can really verify that. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally, uh, there was uh, there was a story apparently when um, one of his superiors, to David Sterling, kind of guffawed at this idea. And David Sterling had a bet with him. And he said, look, um, in the next few months, we'll destroy more enemy planes on the ground than the RAF will in the sky. Whether or not that's anecdotal and it actually happened, who knows. But And again, we're exposed by the media and film today to the idea of special forces. You mm-hmm. know, this tiny group of people who go in and mm-hmm. raid and maybe you're talking about half a dozen people. Mm-hmm. But it was very revolutionary at the time. Oh, at the time, yeah, yeah. It just—it just—it wasn't the way things were done. It was it very much went against what we call the terms of conventional warfare. Yeah, that was a gamble that a lot of people um, weren't willing to take because after all, these people being dropped in behind enemy lines and weren't given very many chances of survival. And like Owen's personality, there's similar background, mm-hmm. I suppose, uh, rugby to an extent, law, um, middle class, sense of adventure, perhaps. And this quite unconventional behaviour mm-hmm. um, was was did Owen get up to what Paddy Meehan would have got up to in terms of drinking, in terms of breaking the rules of the British Army? No, no, not 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 at all, really. Um, whereas Blair was seen as you know anti kind of anti establishment in terms of um, his views toward authority figures. Um, Owen would be very much. He was known for being a huge character, very gregarious. Got on with everyone. Everyone liked him. Didn't really butt heads very much. So he was kind of chalk and cheese, really, compared to um, compared to Blair Main. I suppose that's perhaps why they were able to get on so well together because um, Blair could uh, cut loose and Owen would be able to wrangle him in, and both would inspire each other to a degree. Now, Owen McGonagall didn't survive. World no. War Two, as we we've mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, can we? What can we say about his death? Well, contrary to what is depicted in the BBC series, um, his death is kind of shrouded in a degree of mystery. Now, what happened was this was the first and only parachute drop that the SAS did in Egypt, even though they were originally formed as a kind of a, a parachute uh, detachment. But in August 1941, um, about 50 members of L Detachment SAS um, flew over. And sorry, November 1941. Um, they flew to parachute into Libya behind MA lines and their, their mission was to attack these three coastal Axis air bases on foot in uh, Timini and Gazala. Now, it was 
the reports from the time suggest it perhaps wasn't the best idea to even um, undergo this mission at the time because the weather was terrible. No one had ever parachuted into the desert before. And as it happened, um, of the of the 50 members um, that went on that mission, only about half of them actually returned. Um, Owen and his group um, parachuted in the desert and he was never heard from again. It is assumed that he either most likely died um, in the parachute drop or he perhaps survived the drop, but he was either captured and killed or um, simply died from, from the elements. And he was just one month shy of his 21st birthday. Yes, which, 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 you know, we, we've been speaking about someone and we, you would assume yeah, he was older. Very much so, yeah. It's, it's strange even a lot of these these characters. I think the, the average age in the SES at that time was only 25. Um, but yeah, Owen was actually became an inst- uh, the weapons instructor for uh, L Attachment and he was only 20 years old at the time. But all told, when you actually take a step back, although it seems they did an awful lot at, um, over this period, it was only for Owen anyway, it was only the space of maybe a year, two years, from when he got into training in Aberdeenshire or Ballymena rather, or ER, to when he died. And his death had a huge impact on, on Paddy Meehan. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah. I think from a lot of his contemporaries at the time, he just said he was never the same again. Yeah, fly off the handle more than usual and he would write letters to Owen's mother um, and in one of them he, he tells of going out when he was supposed to be an R&R but he, he decided to uh, return to, to Libya to where the, uh, Owen's drop zone was in that ill-fated mission and to try to recover his body which he never did. Now, Owen's brother Ambrose, as we've mentioned, mm-hmm. he also joined up, joined the Royal Ulster Rifles in Balamina. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mentioned he broke his leg and that took him away from the SAS, but he he end, he did end up in, in what we would now describe as the Special Forces, the Special Boat Squadron. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, educated in Clonoes Wood College in County Kildare. Mm-hmm. He was an athlete. He won a Leinster School's rugby cap Uh then he went to Queens and he joins up. What, what can we say about yeah. Ambrose? Well, actually, he spent two years studying uh, arts at Queens University, um, which he described as two inglorious years. Um, but then he decided, maybe I should follow the family uh, footsteps here and get into law. So um, he was student at the King's Inn in the autumn of 1938. But as we say, with the outbreak of war, um, he signed up with the Royal Ulster Rifles. Now, he served with the 12th Commando, um, between 1943 and four, and he served in the Aegean with the Special Boat Service, which was um, the SAS's sister regiment, even though it was formed quite a bit after the the um, the SAS was. Um, he was awarded military cross in 1943 with a bar the following year and mentioned in dis- dispatches. So um, he was a very successful soldier. Um, I think he retired with the rank of major. Um, and then he, you know, after he was... Uh, demobilized. Um, he went back to his law studies. Now, at the time, he had a very distinguished military career. Let's let's you know, oh, say much, much so. longer than his brother Owen, and we can see many distinctions there. So yeah, uh, and he he had risen to the to the ranks. So I think I think that's that's significant. Mm-hmm. And when he gets out, he goes back into the family trade, back into the law. Yeah, yeah. Originally, actually, he went. To, he became a all a bar student at um, Queen's University, but. At the time, he would have been required to have an undergraduate degree to do that, but because of his uh, military service, um, he was exempted from this. Um, and then he completed his studies and he was called to uh, the Northern Ireland Bar in 1948 at the age of 30. And he became a Queen's Council, uh, taking silk in 1956. 
This was interesting because in a couple of years after that, although um, judicial appointments at the time, um, now this was about just over a decade before the uh, the start of the outbreak of the Troubles, um, they were predominantly reserved for unionists, um, Protestant unionists. Um, but it was decided to, when it was decided to increase the complement of Northern Ireland High Court judges by two, um, McGonagall was the obvious choice, Ambrose, um, and he was made High Court judge. You know, judicial appointments at the time predominantly reserved for unionists. I mean, what more did he have to do? I mean, this was a major, uh, uh, you know, who'd taken the oath of allegiance to the to the crown, uh, yeah. who had served in the SBS in World War II. I think II. that's what probably actually swung it in the end. And if it wasn't for that, um, we probably wouldn't have never, never... And I find that you know, fascinating yeah. because, you know, there's nothing to indicate in the background of the McGonagall family that they were Irish nationalists. No, not at all. I would venture to say that they were people happy, as we would say today, the people happy with the status quo. Well, the, the, in terms of the literature that's written about them, they just don't seem to um, go into very much in terms um, of their political persuasion other than to say they were first and foremost Ulster men. But yeah, I would say, I would dare say if you had to put a bet on it in this day and age, they would have been leaning towards the Ulster Unionist kind of end of things. Now, the 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 troubles come along, mm-hmm. the Deplock courts come along, yeah, and Ambrose presided over many of these. Yeah, can, we tell, can you tell us anything more about that? Yeah, so essentially, as people will probably know, Deplock courts are courts that sit sitting without judges just because from uh, fear of people being intimidated and whatnot, and just the current climate at the time. So Ambrose presided over many of these. He was known for being a very stern character. So you, you knew where you, where you sat with him, but uh, very fair in the same time. Um, he was actually promoted to the Court of Appeal in 1975. And it's been noted in some reports that due to the threat of terrorism, he was known for carrying a gun underneath his robe, which just shows you how uh, dangerous it could be to be a judge at that time. I mean, there were cases of judges being being murdered. Uh, and yeah. Catholic judges, Catholic judges yeah. were particularly spies, they were, detested they were seen and targeted. As, they were seen as traitors, essentially, yeah. 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 Um, and in one, probably most notorious would probably be the word, in a 1977 ruling of his, he appeared to condone a degree of physical ill treatment, falling short of torture, or inhuman and degrading treatment to obtain emissions from detainees while in, cust- while in custody. Because there was, you, you would have heard anyone that would be a student of, of history, of Troubles history, there's known for being cases of mistreatment um, in you know, Castle Ray at the time, interrogation centre. But uh, Lord Justice McGonagall, as he was at the time, said that in this ruling, that a blow did not necessarily render a statement given inadmissible. And obviously this this created quite a lot of criticism and it became known as the Torturer's Charter. And Ambrose died in September 1979 at the quite young age of of 61. Mm -hmm. Uh, His son, Owen Mm. McGonagall, is is currently, isn't he, a leading barrister? He is indeed. Yeah, yeah. Then we followed in the the family line. Uh, Ambrose's son Owen, obviously named after Ambrose's brother or his uncle. Um, he went into law himself, and that continues to this day. Did Blair Meehan ever meet up with Ambrose? Or did he? Did he ever have much contact with Ambrose? Yeah, yeah. No. When Blair Meehan, um left the services, he went back to his um, profession in law. He was secretary for the Law Society, and him and Ambrose were known to to meet up um, and go out for. Uh, a, a few drinks on occasion. Um, there was there was one actually anecdotal story where 
they had a big argument, nearly got to blows um, after um, a night of drinking and Ambrose stormed off, I think from, it was a hotel bar at the time. Um, and Blair got in his car and at about five miles per hour crept up slowly behind him just to make sure he got home safely. So yeah, no, they stayed close together and Ambrose brought um, his son Owen to meet Blair um, when he was working in the garden of his property and uh, Blair gave young Owen, um, I think it was his father's silver cigarette case. And just a final question, I suppose, in terms of the the David Sterling, the founder of the SAS, and these characters, again, brought to life by the BBC series. Mm-hmm. I mean, what part do you think that Owen McGonagall has in in the legacy of the SAS? Well, he was the founding member of, of the SAS, and it, as I say, he died on their, their first and last mission, so he... And it was a mission. Their first and his last. Their first and his last. But it was the first and last parachute mission. Sorry, rather, first and last parachute mission that they ever did. And because of how disastrous it went, and Owen lost his life, and was because his body's been never found. There's a degree of myth behind it, but I think he's an example of the SAS's daring, which uh, they became known for. After all, that's their motto: "Who dares wins." Andrew Madden, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, along with Andrew Madden. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from British Pathé and the History Channel. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland.